you may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless. You guys ready for a message today? Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, today is Super Bowl Sunday, and you must participate in one of these questions. And there will be enough options for all of you. How many of you are rooting for the Rams today? That was better than first service. How many of you are rooting for the Bengals today? Damn. What is it with the Bengals? How many of you could care less and you're like, it's a beautiful day, I'm going to the beach? You guys are so spiritual, amazing. I go, Super Bowl. Um, I got I got permission from my wife to share this. She was so sweet. I said, hey, love, can you create an evite for a Super Bowl party? And she's like, yeah, I'd be happy to. She's like, what do you want on it? I was like, oh, a nice football graphic. Something that says Rams versus Bengals. She's like, yeah, no problem. I didn't check her work. And she sent the evite out. And it says Rams versus Bengals. Problem is, it's like the Bengals you wear on your arm. <laughs> Not the Bengal Tigers. like, oh my goodness, no wonder nobody comes. <laughs> well, I have some fun Super Bowl facts for us since it is Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, the game's being played at SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles today. We have a nice picture of SoFi Stadium. Uh, this thing costs $6 billion to build. That is a 360 degree backwards and forwards jumbotron above the stadium. And that will be seating 70,000 people today. Uh, pretty amazing. It's amazing for the city of Los Angeles, all the business that it brings in. But I thought an interesting statistic was 70,000 people get to go to the game. 100 million plus people will watch the game today. And yet only about 70 to 80 players will actually play in the game today. And I was thinking about God's kingdom, that he does not call us to be merely spectators, but he wants us on the field playing. And it's so easy for us to get caught up as just spectators. And that can happen just sitting in the pews or coming to the chairs at church. It can happen by knowing the language because you grew up with it. It can even happen by reading the Bible without putting anything into action. And God calls us not merely to be spectators like the hundred plus million people today of this game, but instead to be actual participants on the field in which God has called us. And I've titled the message today, Prayer in God's Playbook. Prayer in God's Playbook. We're going to be looking specifically at Acts chapter 12, in which we're going to look at the role that prayer plays in the follower of Jesus' life. And just for fun, a couple more stats for you. The average sandwich or hamburger, if you were at the Super Bowl, would cost you $17. <laughs> Americans on Super Bowl weekend, just for Super Bowl food, spend $15.5 billion. And the average ticket cost, if you wanted to go to the Super Bowl, this is the average, is $8,772. Guess how much it costs to come to the mission today? Oh, free! Free! The average 30-second ad for the Super Bowl... $5.6 million for 30 seconds. And yet we know this. In order to pray to the God of the universe, the one who created heaven and earth and has the power to move all things, what does it cost us to be in fellowship and communion with him? It's free. It costs us nothing. And did you know that for all the hassle people go through, and there's nothing wrong with going to the Super Bowl, by the way, that's... I'm a little envious. That would be really cool. But there's quite a hassle. If you're not from Southern California this year, you had to buy flights 
and somehow get out here, and I'm sure they were terribly expensive, trying to find hotel accommodations or Airbnbs, just trying to get into the stadium. 70,000 people out of over 100 million who will watch it. What a small percentage that even get to be just spectators inside the stadium. And what's amazing to me is when we look at God's word, both Old and New Testament, did you know that with prayer you can go anywhere in the world? You can go into a North Korean prison cell by praying for a person who is trapped. You can go into the Oval Office to pray for the President of the United States of America when you could never get in on your own. You can pray for school classrooms and kids and teachers at your local elementary school or high school. You can pray for people in hospital rooms in which you can't go and visit them because of COVID regulations. You can even pray for the hearts of men and women in your life. And the God who created all things is listening. Prayer makes us participants and not merely spectators. Prayer makes us participants and not merely spectators. And we're going to look at a chapter today in which the Apostle Peter is put in a very difficult circumstance. And the beauty of what's happening in this passage, it's subtle. The whole passage isn't about prayer. And yet there's a verse in this passage in which in Acts chapter 12, verse 5, tells us while Peter is in dire straits facing imminent death, the church was praying for him constantly. And we'll see the results of what earnest prayer does in the life of Peter. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. If you need a Bible this morning, just go ahead and raise your hand and one of our awesome ushers will be happy to place one in your lap for you. It'd be much more enjoyable if you can follow along in the scriptures. If you are new with us this morning, Acts chapter 12, Acts is towards the end of the Bible. It's in what's called the New Testament and the four gospels come first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then come the acts or the actions of the apostles. The apostles putting into practice what Jesus had discipled them in for three years. And before we get into the text this morning, let us bow our heads in prayer and ask for God to move in our hearts and minds. Father in heaven, we need you. We need you in the difficult circumstances of our lives. We need you in the suffering, in the pain, in the worry, in the fear of the unknown. Lord, we need you when we're joyful and when life is going well. And Lord, we need you now because it is only by your spirit that you reveal to us your will according to your word. So God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds that we would be humble enough to receive what you have for us today, that we would be attentive enough to not lose focus of your scriptures, and Lord, that we would be bold enough to put into practice the prayer life that you call us to, to be participants and not just spectators. So Lord, we ask that you would meet us in this place and that we would glorify you in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Acts chapter 12. Uh, to give you a little bit of understanding of where we are in the scriptures, the New Testament, Jesus has come to earth. He's lived a perfect and sinless life, teaching his disciples and many others about the kingdom of God. He has healed people. He has ministered to their souls and to their spirits. He has cast out demons. He has calmed the wind and the waves. And he has gone to the cross on our behalf. A man who knew no sin and yet became sin for us so that we might be saved. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead so that we could have new life. The power of sin and death being conquered. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father after 40 days. As he discipled his disciples on earth, specifically the 12, he gave them instructions I want you to go and make disciples of me, not of yourselves, of me, baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have taught you. Start in Jerusalem, 
then Judea, then Samaria, and then go to the ends of the earth. Take the gospel, the good news, all around the earth. And at this point, the apostles have been doing what Jesus has asked. As a matter of fact, they've been sharing the good news so much, and disciples have been getting made like crazy. The church is thriving. It's humming. Antioch's got a chili cook-off next week. Corinth has a thriving young adults ministry. Macedonia has mission groups popping up everywhere. The church is firing on all cylinders. And if you know anything about momentum, this is where the church is. It's experienced tremendous growth in a short amount of time. The word of God is going out in power and in truth. And people are being saved daily and added to the church. Then we get to Acts chapter 12. Luke writes, now about that time, about that time meaning all those things I just mentioned, at the time when the church was thriving, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, meaning Peter, he put Peter in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. We see that that momentum has met a serious roadblock. James, one of the apostles, the first of the 12 to be martyred, is beheaded with the sword upon Herod's request. And it wasn't because John had some personal thing against Herod or Herod had some personal thing, excuse me, against James. It was simply a political move on Herod's part. He wanted to grow in popularity with the Jews. It would be no different than a candidate for presidency or another part of the office simply doing something just to appease the people in order to maintain his grip or his power. Not that our government does that whatsoever. <laughs> but we see Herod has James put to death for political reasons and it pleases the Jews. What a blow to the church. James, the brother of John, one of the inner three of Jesus' disciples, is put to death. And because Herod sees that it pleases the Jewish people as a whole, he also has Peter arrested and thrown in prison. And do you notice the details that Luke says? He says, he seizes Peter, and it was during the days of unleavened bread, and he had plans to bring Peter out before the people after Passover. What does this sound like? This sounds like when Jesus was arrested, when he was brought out before the people, when a riot practically broke out in which they declared to crucify him, and then he was put to death. Peter is in a very similar circumstance, and it's made clear. Herod has every intention of putting Peter to death. It's imminent. There's no way for Peter to get out of this situation. He's literally chained between two guards, and he's not just in prison, he's in the inner prison, which means there were multiple gates to get him deep into prison, and Herod did this for a purpose. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are teaching in the temple, and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, has them arrested and thrown in prison. And what happens in Acts chapter 5? They get out. God miraculously opens the prison door, they go out, and what do they start doing again? They go right back to the temple and they start teaching. Herod would have known of this story, and so he takes great pains to ensure that Peter is not going anywhere. He's stuck. It's impossible for him to escape. And even though today, as we're looking at this literal story, we see that Peter is in physical chains, I encourage you to also think about what are some of the chains that we find ourselves or family members or friends in bondage to today. It could be the chains of addiction. It could be the chains of a sexual relationship outside of marriage. It could be the chains of anxiety and depression or crippling, overwhelming sadness. 
It simply could be the chains of sin in which we don't want to do something, but we find ourselves doing it. And the things that we want to do, we don't end up doing, as Paul says. And we know that there are certain things in our life that no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we white-knuckle it, no matter how many self-help books we read, how many 47 steps or 12 steps we go through, that we cannot rescue ourselves. It's just not possible. And Peter's literal circumstances are often reflective of our spiritual, emotional, or mental circumstances. It reveals to us how much we need a Savior because unless someone greater than us moves on our behalf, those chains cannot be broken. Peter finds himself in an impossible situation and perhaps you or someone you know also finds themselves in an impossible situation. Acts chapter 12, verse 5. We're going to read this verse and then we're going to spend some time unpacking why prayer is so important. Verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Now, this is a very matter-of-fact sentence. Peter's in jail. The church is praying for him. So why is it so significant? And maybe a practical question might be, well, What good does prayer even do in a circumstance like this? If you want something done, if Peter's in jail, what are some ideas of getting him out? Oh, none of you are criminals in here. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what I would do. Get enough people and break him out. Or bribe the guards. Or appeal to Herod. Do something to take action. What good does prayer do? What good does sitting on your rear end or getting on your knees and praying to an invisible God, how does that possibly do anything? How does it matter for the circumstances that you find yourself in or for others? What even is prayer? I know that in my household with my four kids, Kids like to ask a certain question. What is that question? Why? Why can't I have a fourth bowl of ice cream? Why can't I watch a movie this late? Why can't I punch my brother in the face when he does this to me? Why? And as a parent, I have a decision. And I don't always make the right decision, by the way. The decision is this. Because I'm your father and I told you so. Now, is that true? Yes, it is true. (laughs) Who said no? Jasmine, was that you? Man. It is true. I have authority in their life, but if I want to get to their heart, I need to answer the the question, which is what? Why? Why, Dad? Why can't we do this? And when we look at prayer, I believe it's it's important for us to look at the same thing. Depending on how you've grown up, if you grew up in the church, there's no question you believe that prayer is good and that we should pray. But do you know how to answer the question, well, why should we pray? Why is it important? What difference does it make? And so we're going to go through a few of these questions, hopefully to equip and encourage you this morning. And the first question we're going to answer is, what is prayer? What is prayer? And there is a very long list we could go through. These are just a couple of answers. And this one may hit home at the most basic level of prayer. Prayer is our response to the knowledge of God. Our response to the knowledge of God. And here's why that's so cool. That a person who goes in a traumatic circumstance or in a time when they're afraid, they go, oh God, please help me even at a basic level, they've recognized what? There is a God. And it's our response to the initiating work he's already done. The initiating work that he's shown in creation when he made the universe. If you're new to the Mission Church for the last four weeks, we've been going through Genesis chapter 1, looking at God's creation. And that through creation, it's his initiating work, creating out of nothing, that word bara. He's initiated creation. 
It's God who initiates salvation through sending his son, Jesus Christ, as the propitiation or the sacrifice for our sins. It's God who initiates a relationship with us as he pursues us. He comes after us. He knows us. We don't go looking for him unless he is first moved upon our hearts. To pray is literally a response to the initiating work that God has already done in which we go, well, I know there's a God. What is prayer? Prayer is also meant to be a two-way conversation with God. A two-way conversation with God. And I recognize, um, outside of some places in the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit speaking in the New Testament, most of us will not experience an audible voice with God where we can sit with another person like Jeremy and I and have a back and forth conversation. But make no mistake that prayer is meant to be a two-way conversation with God in which God initiates his word for us to read. How does God speak to us? Through his word. And we respond to his word by praying back to him. And when it's more than just once, but it's something that regularly happens, what we find is the deeper we get into God's word, the more we know about him, the more we know about his plan of salvation and his purpose for our lives, and the more we know how to call upon his name according to his word, which eventually reveals his will. Prayer is meant to be a two-way conversation with God. We read his word, we pray it back to him, and he begins to conform us to his heart and to his mind. So the next question I have for us is, okay, if prayer is our response to the knowledge of God, and if it's meant to be a two-way conversation, what do we pray? What do we pray? And I would say one of the first things that we pray is love and adoration back to God. Love and adoration back to God. As we've been going through this Genesis series, we've literally just sat for four weeks in awe and wonder of the details of his creation. From the vast expanse of the universe to the tiniest cell, which he has made so complex that man still can't unpack everything about it despite the amazing technology that we have and everything in between. The diversity in the animal and plant life and how the bodies work. Looking at human beings made in his image. Looking at the beauty of the sunset and the incredible nature of the scientific facts of gravity or the atmosphere or the natural laws that he's put into place. So that as we look at creation, as we read God's word, the beginning of prayer begins with love and adoration. And to me, this is one reason why it's so important is when you are in a relationship with another person, whether that be a, a friendship, whether that be a marriage, whether that be um, a mentoring relationship, when you can express adoration for how that person has impacted your life or what you love about them or the strengths and the character that you see in them, does that grow the relationship? You bet it does. And we are called to give God love and adoration. It's one of the things that we are called to pray. The second thing would be repentance. We know that God initiated salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave. And because we are sinners, we need a savior. And so we come before God and in prayer, we confess our sins. We take ownership of what we've done. And we don't just pray general prayers of, oh Lord, forgive me for all my sins. What we're called to do is go, Lord, please forgive me for my pridefulness. I just taught that message and I thought I was amazing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> hey, you laugh, but it's the reality, right? How often do we do things and we go, wow, I'm pretty good. Time to repent in prayer. We bring our hearts before the Lord knowing that he is perfect and we are not. He is creator. We are the creature. And it's through repentance that the proper relationship stays balanced. That he is lifted up and exalted. 
And we are simply his obedient servants who love a God who called us to himself. What do we pray? Love and adoration, repentance, and then what we're really going to focus on today. We can pray earnest cries for help. Earnest cries for help. When is it that we often give God earnest cries for help? What kind of circumstances and situations? All of us know when we're hurting, when something is really scary and we don't know how we're going to get through it, when you or a friend gets a health diagnosis or you get word about a mom or a dad or you watch your kids suffer or a broken relationship that seems like it can't be mended. All of those things cause us to respond to God with cries of help. And that's good. We read in the Psalms over and over again, David constantly lamenting before God, even saying things to the point of like, God, where are you? When will you avenge me? Why do the wicked prosper? Lord, I've not done anything wrong in this circumstance, and yet it seems like the enemy is getting away with everything. Prayer is a way for us to bring our earnest cries for help before God. And here's the beauty of why that's so important. Here is the depth of what it helps us to better understand when we pray prayers like this. Is instead of shouldering the burden ourselves, when we cry out for God's help in all the messiness, in all the tears, in all the frustration, and not even knowing exactly how to put it or what to say, we are taking the burden off our own shoulders and we're placing at God's feet going, I can't do this. I need help. And that's right where God wants us to be. We are not saviors. We cannot rescue ourselves or anybody else, but we are called to be participants and not spectators through the mighty work that God desires to do in us and through us according to his word and according to his spirit. So now we get to the why. Why do we pray? What's the point? Does it really matter? And what I want to tell you this morning is our prayers matter. Our prayers matter. The Bible over and over again encourages the believers to be praying in all circumstances and without ceasing. It's a command from God for us to be in communion with him, to be praying constantly. And in the book of James, chapter 5, James is giving general instruction to believers about Christian living. And this helps us answer the why do we pray. Let's read just the first part of verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Just the first part of 13. If we go back a few verses in James, James tells the believers, hey, don't grumble against one another. Don't complain against each other. Because here's the reality of our life. When things get hard and things get difficult, we tend to do what? We tend to complain and then blame and then shame so that we can pass the buck and point the finger somewhere else. And we do it to one another and we do it to God. And we see that beginning all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when God asks Adam, did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to? And he says, yes, Lord, it was me. Please forgive me. <laughs> we have a tendency to complain when things get hard in our life. And Paul, excuse me, when James says, hey, instead of complaining, instead of grumbling against one another, is anyone among you suffering? Well, the answer is what? Yes, of course. There's suffering all over this room in a variety of ways. And the instruction from God's word is to what? Let him pray because your prayers matter. Your prayers matter. We continue. It says, is anyone cheerful? What are we to do? 
Let him sing psalms or hymns or spiritual songs. Then verse 14, all together. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. James gives instruction. Listen, if any of you is sick, if any of you are struggling with significant health issues, what are you to do? Ask for the elders of the church to come and to pray over you. Now, it's important for us to remember that our prayers are not a way for us to manipulate God into doing what we want. That would be a very religious thing to do, that if I do this, then God has to do this. Remember, we are called to be participants and not spectators, which means this. When God invites us to pray, to pray for those who are suffering, to pray for those who are sick, to those who are stuck in sin, we want to pray for them to be released from their chains and from their bondage. It's not that God has to do something. It's that God often desires to do the very thing we're asking for because our hearts are finally getting aligned with whose? With God's. We know God's will when we know God's word. So that if anyone is stuck in sin and you pray to be released from sin, is that God's will? You bet it is. But how do you know? Because it's in God's word. And if we're not reading God's word, it's very difficult for us to understand God's will and for our hearts to become aligned with his. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of the faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses or your sins to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. Again, it is not a fail-safe to go, well, I prayed and God has to do this. All of us have probably been in a situation in which we've prayed a certain way and God has chosen not to answer in that certain way. But we pray for the sick and we pray for healing because it's the best that we know how based on God's character. When he created the earth, was there any sickness, death, or any decay? No, when we look at Revelation chapter 1, when God renews the earth after his son has returned, there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. It's in God's nature. Oh, that is the sweetest sound on the planet right there. Wow. It is in God's nature in which we should ask for healing. And we hold that tension between participating in prayer for what we believe God wants according to his word and holding an open hand knowing God is absolutely sovereign. He owes us nothing and yet he loves his children, and it's in his word in which he commands us to pray. And I love what James says. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Because when you confess your sin to a brother or sister in Christ, instead of gossiping about your sin, they'll point you back to Jesus. And what was in the darkness and held a grip on you, now comes into the light and, believe, and begins to lose its strength. The beauty of confession and prayer with one another. And just so that James can say, hey, this is so true, let me give you an example. Let's read verse 17 and 18 together. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, which simply means he was just human, right? And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. We know from the Old Testament in 1 Kings 17 and 18 that Elijah being aligned with God's will because he knew God's word prayed that it would not rain for three years and it wasn't because Elijah was such a great guy it wasn't because Elijah had so much power it was because he was aligned with God's will so that what he prayed for was what God wanted to do 
And we are called to align ourselves with God's will. It's the second part of why do we pray? Because prayer aligns our will with God's. Prayer aligns our will with God's. And we read in James chapter 4, James again, verse 3, he says this, And when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You see, prayer aligns our will with God's, which means this. As we pray according to God's word, we start to realize what are selfish prayers that simply benefit us, that give us self-gratification, that build our kingdoms and empires, versus what does it look like to be aligned with God's will in which we're praying for his word to go forth, in which we're praying for things that he desires, not only for our life, but for the life of others and the church. And some of you may be saying, well, JC, that's, that's great. Um, I'm not sure I always understand God's will. How many of you have ever been in a circumstance where you're like, I'm not really sure what God's will is? How many of you are like, yeah, that's my normal. <laughs> Outside of maybe issues of morality, yeah, sometimes we don't know. Like, Lord, what is your will? Do we have to pray the perfect prayer? Do we have to use a certain language? What if we say, hey God, instead of dear Heavenly Father? Like, does that matter? Are we in trouble? Here's what I love. Keep your finger on Acts 12 and turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Scripture supporting Scripture. What do we do when we don't know how to pray? Not because we don't want to pray, not because we don't have a heart that longs to cry out to God, but what if I don't know how to pray or exactly what to pray for? The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 8:26. If you're there, give me a big amen. amen. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. Aren't you glad that God knows we have weaknesses? Could you imagine if he was like, I don't understand why you're acting this way. <laughs> what if I said that to my six-year-old? I don't know why you, I don't know why you're crying. But I would not be a very loving father. God knows us. Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. In other words, when we're praying, we're like, God, I'm, I don't know what your will is. I know you're all powerful. I know that you can handle this, but I don't understand what you're doing or what to pray for. I need help. Who intercedes for you? It's God's Spirit because he knows the mind of God. He knows exactly what God's will is, and on our behalf, he prays for us. And this is the beauty of prayer. Without something like this, it's quite a burden. We might think that we have to say the exact words, or we have to use certain language, or how many times have you been like, I hope no one ever asked me to pray in a group setting, because I'm not going to do good. Listen, even if you went, oh, meh, ah, meh, you can go to Romans 8, 26, and like, the Spirit was interceding for me. That's... <laughs> Verse 27, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. What a comfort. Knowing that when we don't even know how to pray or what to pray for, when we do engage in prayer, God's spirit goes ahead of us, for us, according to God's will. What a burden lifted. Still called to be participants. It doesn't mean you don't pray. It does mean when you're called to pray, know that God can intercede for you as you seek his will and not your own. Finally, why do we pray? Because prayer is a weapon against evil. Prayer is a weapon against evil. These days are evil. We live in a dark time. We live in a day of confusion where the enemy is deceiving and blinding billions of people on our planet. 
And when we look at Ephesians chapter 6, many of you know the passage, the whole armor of God, and it ends with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then Paul says we are to always be praying in the Spirit because it itself is a weapon against evil. We don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the unseen powers and forces of darkness and principalities. Our weapon is God's word in prayer. It's literally a weapon against evil. And we know that the church in Acts chapter 12 recognizes that what's going on in Peter's life He's been arrested by Herod, not because he broke a law, not because he personally hurt Herod, but simply because he's sharing the good news of Jesus. Evil is working through Herod to try to put a stop to what God commanded his disciples to do, which was to go and make more disciples. And the church is praying in the spirit according to God's word, as a weapon against evil, not trying to break Peter out of his chains on their own strength, not trying to get enough money to bribe the guards, not groveling to Herod a wicked king in order to get what they wanted. Instead, they go to the majesty of the entire universe and they go, Lord, we're going to pray for our brother Peter that you would encourage his heart while he's in prison, that you would protect him and that you would somehow get him out. good prayer. It's a big task. Peter is in trouble. We continue in Acts chapter 12. Still with me? Verse 5 again, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping. Uh, I do love this. Um, do you remember when Jesus was taking a nap in the boat while there was the big storm and the disciples were like, we're going to die and Jesus is sleeping. <laughs> Peter's about to be brought out, most likely to be executed the next day. And what's he doing in his prison cell? Sleeping. He's either really tired or he has tremendous peace that he's right where he should be. He was bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Uh, this is total inference. This is not in the Bible. It appears that the angel gave Peter quite a whack in the side. You kind of wonder if he was like waiting for that one. He's like, let me out him, Lord. God's like, yeah, wake him up. He's like, gave him a good, gave him a good pop. Verse 8, then the angel said to him, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so Peter did. And the angel said to him, put on your garments and follow me. These words, although common words, were the same words used in Matthew chapter 4 for Peter, James, John, and Andrew when Jesus called them from their fishing business and said, Peter, I want you to follow me. The angel gives him the same command. So Peter went out and followed him. And did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Um, to give you just a brief explanation, Peter has seen a vision fairly recently. If you remember in the book of Acts, there was a sheet full of both clean and unclean animals that comes down from heaven. And a voice from heaven tells Peter, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no, I've never eaten anything unclean. And this vision is repeated three times. It was an actual vision. Peter is literally being led out of prison and he thinks it's a what? He thinks it's a vision. You ever have one of those dreams where you think you're dreaming and then you wake up and you're not really dreaming? That made no sense. <laughs> Verse 10. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. What I love about this, it's subtle in the text. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. But how many of us in our own life know that God, you can do this and you've done this before, but this massive iron gate that's before me now, I just don't know if you can open that one. And Peter gets 
out of the first small parts of the prison is standing there before this massive gate that leads to the city. And the gate does what? It opens on its own accord, meaning that God had gone ahead of Peter, much like the Spirit goes ahead of us in prayer. And if God wills it to happen, it simply just opens. It's not Peter kicking it down. It's not Samson ripping it off its hinges. It's literally God just opening the door. Is there an iron gate in your life that you're not sure God can open? Because he certainly will if it's according to his will and his word. Verse 11. And when Peter had come to himself, meaning when he realized this wasn't a dream, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. In other words, to be put to death. And what I love about what Peter is doing is he's giving credit to where credit is due. He's out on the street. He realizes, oh, this is real. And who's he give credit to? To God. He says, hey, he sent his messenger and angel to deliver me. And it's not for the purpose of my comfort. It's not for the purpose for me to go hide. It's not for the purpose of me just to retire as a disciple and find a nice beach cottage. It's for the purpose of me continuing to do what God has called me to do, which is make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what deliverance is for. If you've experienced deliverance in your health, it's not just for the ease of your life. It's so that you can continue to be used by God. If you've been delivered from a certain financial situation, it's not so that you can have more and pile up things for your own kingdom. It's to be used for his glory as a testimony of what he's done in your life. This is what God did for Peter. And look at verse 12. When he considered this, meaning when he considered why he had been delivered from death, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together doing what? We're praying. I love this. Peter doesn't go to in and out to get a double-double now that he's out of prison. He doesn't go get a new pair of shoes. He goes, hey, I know there are people praying for me, and I'm going to go right to their house right now. And it also probably had to do with some practical things of like, I'm out of prison. Someone's going to know soon I got to get under the cover of, of a roof somewhere. And before we go any further... I want you to know this. Answered prayer increases our faith. Answered prayer increases our faith. When we are the recipients of an answered prayer, no, no question, it increases our faith. But even if you are a participant who is praying for another person and God answers that prayer, what's it do to your faith? Oh, because you are now a participant in the mighty work of God in which you go, oh, I've been praying for that. I was praying. And you're like trying not to take credit, but you're kind of in that zone of like, yeah, but I was praying. I want to rejoice with you. That's amazing because I was praying. And notice Peter, glory goes to God, but how cool for the person that was praying. Not just increasing Peter's faith, but when people see Peter who are praying for Peter, who's that going to encourage? Oh, the whole church who was praying. So Peter goes to Mary's house. Oh, the Bible is humorous. I love this part. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, it probably wasn't like this. He just got out of prison. Someone's going to be looking for him soon. It's probably like this. Verse 14 or 13. A girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. My kids do this all the time. We have a rule in our house. If you know who's at the door, like we know them, you can open the door. If not, you have to come get us. But it never fails. When their favorite people are at the door, they don't open it. They just run to us. They're like, ah, they're here. (laughs) Open the door. Let them in. Peter's like, it's me, Peter. And Rhoda's like, awesome, and runs the other way. And Peter's got a sense of urgency for sure, like get me off the street and into the house. And notice poor Rhoda. 
Guys, this is so good. This is why the Bible is so important. We are human beings. What's happening in the house? There's a beautiful little prayer circle. And everyone's got their hands folded. And maybe they're even on their knees. And what are they praying for? For Peter to be released. Verse 15. But they said to her, you're crazy. You are beside yourself. You're not making any sense. There's no way that Peter's out of prison. You're praying for Peter to get out of prison. But isn't that like myself in my own life where there's no question. Sometimes I pray and I'm in absolute shock that God answers those prayers. Because I'm a faithless person. And even though I pray, sometimes I'm not sure I believe wholeheartedly that God could do what I'm asking him to do. And that's how gracious he is. He doesn't go, oh, well, didn't have enough faith, not answering that prayer. Amazing the God we serve and the grace that he gives us. How important it is for us to be praying. Even when we go, Lord, I'm praying this and I need help in my own unbelief as I pray for this. Poor Rhoda. You're beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it's his angel. Do we do this? Do we try to come up with logical explanations or illogical explanations of why something happened because it's so hard to believe that the God of the universe actually loves us so much that he hears our prayers and that he pays attention to our cries and that he would move on our behalf and that his will is for us to prosper and have an abundant life as we seek his face? God, you would actually do this? No way, it can't be. It's his guardian angel. And I can only imagine poor Rhoda at this point. She's like, I don't know what else to tell you guys. Peter is at the gate. She's probably starting to believe he's not at the gate. Verse 16. Now Peter continued knocking. I bet he did. (laughs) Surprised he didn't go to somebody else's house. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Friends, answered prayer increases our faith. Amazing. Herod had killed James and he had taken Peter into captivity with plans to kill him. And the church starts praying and God answers that prayer according to his will. What do you think that did for the church? Wherever their faith was before Herod did this, Now it's even greater. What was meant for evil, God takes it and spins it on its head. And now the church is increased in faith. Amazing. Amazing. Faith does not grow by knowledge alone. You can't just simply read your Bible and not participate. What prayer does is invites us into participation with God and the work that he's doing. And when he answers prayers... It increases our faith. Faith does not grow by knowledge alone. Prayer invites us to experience God's power. Friends, what is God calling you to pray about in your life? For you, for your family, for your friends, for the church community, for our community at large, for our nation? What is God calling you to pray for? Are you participating so that you can experience the power of God when he answers according to his will. Must have been quite a homecoming for Peter. Middle of the night, people excited, jumping up and down, slapping him on the back, asking him what happened, verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent. Peter's in the real now, right? He's like, yo, be quiet. No one knows I'm out yet, but they're going to if you keep yelling like this. And then notice what he does. He declares to them how who? How the Lord had brought him out of prison. The whole purpose of our deliverance in whatever it is. 
The whole purpose of answered prayers in whatever it is, is to share it with someone else to go, God did this in my life. It wasn't me. It wasn't my intelligence. It wasn't anything that I did. God moved in an impossible way. And that is the testimony of each one of us who have become followers of Jesus Christ. As sinful men and women who could not rescue ourselves from sin and death, God did a miraculous work through his son and through his spirit to bring us into eternal life. This is our testimony. And it's the testimony of Jesus Christ, an answered prayer that we could never do on our own. Verse 18, then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. That is an understatement. Imagine the panic and the terror for these soldiers. And when Herod had searched for Peter and had not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. We're going to finish this chapter with these last four verses. Notice that Herod thought he had the upper hand on God. And God flips it on Herod. And Herod thinks very highly of himself. So much so that we read in verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. I'm not sure why that was, but these were two cities that came under his jurisdiction. And the people of Tyre and Sidon, they came to him with one accord, meaning like, hey, we got to get on Herod's good side. This is not good that the king doesn't like us and he's upset at us. And having made Blastus the king's personal aid, in other words, They've befriended someone close to King Herod. They asked the kings, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Apparently, Herod may have been withholding food from the people of Tyre and Sidon. And so they basically put on a political parade or a political rally in which they're coming to Herod going, Herod, you are the best. You're amazing. We love your politics. We love your face. That's incredible. It's in all of our houses. We love the way you do business. Like we're here and we just want to say thank you. And can you please start letting food come back into our cities? And instead of Herod giving glory to God, listen to what he does. Verse 21. So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave a speech or an oration to them. The historian Josephus records that he wore a silver robe and he came out at just the right time of day that the sun would reflect off the robe, creating a glorious appearance of himself. And notice what the people say when they see Herod in all of his splendidness. The voice of a God and not a man. This was Herod's opportunity to do what? To be like, whoa, 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 I'm not God. There is a God. He reigns over all things. I'm not him. I'm simply your public servant. What can I do for you? But instead, Herod takes the praise for himself. Instead of giving glory to God, he self-promotes. And self-promotion leads to destruction. Self-promotion leads to destruction. Verse 23, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Isn't it interesting in Luke's writing of Acts, an angel strikes Peter on the side to awaken him, to bring him to new life. And an angel of the Lord strikes Herod because he self-promoted and did not give glory to God and it leads to his destruction. That same historian Josephus records that Herod in five days time was literally eaten from the inside out by worms and died. But notice verse 24 and here's where we'll end today. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Do you see the juxtaposition? Do you see the contrast? Herod no doubt influenced by Satan's wickedness, had plans for evil. God turns it into plans for good and to increase the faith of the church. And the church continued, according to the word of God, to multiply. Friends, what a work to 
participate in. And that work isn't about getting a certain amount of hours in in the church. It's not about giving enough money. We are invited to participate in what God is doing through prayer so that when he moves in mighty ways, we go, I was praying for that. Glory be to God and not to me. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.